You're listening to Illini Life Audio, messages from a community of Christian believers on the campus of University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. For more audio and video content, visit IlliniLife.org. They're, they're, they're worship songs. It's almost as if someone would take like the worship songs we always sing and just give you that, you know, here's all the lyrics to them. That's what you're reading when you're reading the Psalms. Uh, and just as it might be, you know, we might question or, or, or pull apart, what, what is actually that song we just sang? What are all the implications of that? How do we play that out? How do we live that out? We do the same with the Psalms. So I just offer that, that we have to do some work when we're interpreting poetry. We have to do some work when we're interpreting a song, and that's what the Psalms are. So as we start this new series, we're starting Lent, if you didn't know that. Uh, Wednesday was Ash Wednesday this past week. That begins the the six-ish weeks that lead up to Easter Sunday. And throughout church history, this has been a time for Christians to prepare our hearts for the coming celebration of Jesus' resurrection, right? Easter Sunday, the biggest part of the calendar, the biggest highlight of the year, Resurrection Day, right? This is... This is what the whole year is built around in my mind. And last Sunday, uh, I, we shared a QR code for uh, the Lent reading plan uh, that started on Wednesday. I sent a message out on Flocknote. You can go back and refer to that, or we can uh, ask someone to add you to the plan if you'd like. We encourage you, jump in, read that plan alongside with us. It's a few verses each day with a devotional thought and then a chance to interact in that digital space. It's on a version Bible app, uh, which is free to download, and the plans are free to participate in. You can also do it from the website, I believe, if you don't, have, you don't want to do that on your phone. But, you know, we've done this reading plan for a number of years. We do it in Lent and Advent, and it's just been a great way for us to be connected as the body more throughout the week on a daily basis to hear what the Lord is saying to you all. And so I've enjoyed seeing the comments from those of you that are using that interaction space. Some of us are, uh, use it less. <laughs> uh, I very rarely post there, but I read everything you say, and I'm so encouraged to see what the Lord is speaking to you in this, in this season. So let's dive into the Word together in that way as well, not just in our small groups and here on Sunday. It's a great, uh, it's a great chance to be together. Uh, so as we begin the season of Lent, though, I, I always want to offer you some thoughts, because I just realized we come from a lot of different church backgrounds, right? Uh, some, of, uh, some of you in this room... When you, when you hear the word Lent, you may think, oh, yeah, exactly know what you're talking about, Nick. Yeah, we, I've always done that. It's been part of my family tradition, part of the church tradition. Some of you may think, I have no idea what you're talking about right now. And uh, I thought Wednesday was just a normal day and saw some people with some smudges on their foreheads walking out of St. John's. Uh, yeah, so, so the, the season of Lent, it's, it, as I said, it's been a season that the church has observed throughout history to prepare our hearts for Easter. Right, the, the, these 40-ish days that precede Easter Sunday, they echo the 40 days Jesus spent in the wilderness before beginning his public ministry. And in light of that, many Christians throughout history, they've chosen to engage in spiritual disciplines, to fast during Lent, and to engage in more devotion and other, other uh, spiritual discipline practices. But fasting has been a common staple because Jesus was fasting in the wilderness for 40 days. And so I would encourage you, I'd encourage you in some way or another to to fast during Lent. And if it's possible for you, I'd encourage you to fast from food in some way, because that's the historic understanding of fasting in our faith, and it's hunger is a powerful driver in our lives, a powerful reminder of what, what we're giving up, the sacrifice we're enduring, and why we're doing it. And so in this season, it causes us to reflect on Christ, focus more on him. 
Now, I, I say that, don't, don't think I just told you to go fast for 40 days, right? That's just, that's not really a good idea. It's not really attainable <laughs> if you've never done that before. Uh, you can do things like fast from meat, right? Or you could fast from sweets or choose not to eat food on one day. Uh, you can fast from, uh, you know, maybe, maybe you're going to choose not to eat meat on just one day. Uh, you know, set something that's attainable and that reminds you of why you're engaging in the practice. So I encourage you, fast in some way during Lent to help uh, enter into that spiritual practice. Maybe you can make a commitment to do this with your small group or your, your huddle, your discipleship group, or maybe you just want to pull together a few other believers and uh, help uh, keep each other accountable and encourage one another. What are you hearing from the Lord as you're fasting right now? How's that going for you? When we fast, though, and, and I've been alluded to this, like we don't just take things away. We don't just say, oh, I'm just not going to do that, right? Now I get an extra hour of sleep because I'm not going to eat breakfast, right? No, the, the purpose is to allow us space to focus on the Lord. And so we add things back in, spiritual disciplines, right? Read the, read the reading plan instead of uh, having breakfast, right, uh, when you're fasting. Uh, spend some time praying. Maybe get together with another believer and uh, uh, read Scripture and pray and confess sin to one another, right? We, we enter into spiritual practices, spiritual disciplines, in place of the things we've removed. It allows us the space back in our lives, Along, as, along with having the reminder. So that's my encouragement during Lent, to reorient your heart and your mind, to focus on Jesus. Join with us as we do that. Uh, our teaching series is all focused around that as we uh, start off in this new series, working through some psalms here and preparing for Easter. Uh, so we're already orienting that way as a church. I encourage you personally in your devotion to orient that way as well. So over these next five Sundays that we're together, because we have spring break in the middle of Lent, uh, we're going to explore three key psalms. These are often referred to as messianic psalms because they're telling of the coming Messiah. They, t- they proclaim of God, the one that rule God's creation perfectly. They tell of our great high priest that we have, and they tell of this, of this uh, servant that will suffer on our behalf. And these psalms, they point to Jesus, and so that's why we, we refer to them as the messianic psalms. The, they point to the Messiah, to Jesus, and after spring break, after we've, so we'll do that up until spring break. We'll go through those three psalms, and then uh, after spring break, we'll come back. It'll be Palm Sunday. And so we'll celebrate with reflecting on Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem, which will then begin Holy Week. And the final uh, Sunday, six weeks from now, will be Resurrection, Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday. I'm excited. I look forward to it. Usually it's warmer and there's no snow on the ground, so that's also a plus. We usually gather for a, a meal and fellowship after Easter. I look forward to just that, uh, that part of our calendar and our rhythm. So I'm excited to go through these next six weeks with you. So why don't we jump in then? So we're starting a new series, start, looking at some psalms. And as we do that, I want to acknowledge what just seems very obvious to me all the time, right? As I listen to the news, as I look at the world around me, it just seems obvious. Everything is crazy, right? <laughs> everything is crazy. I really mean that, like everything. Think about this. There was another mass shooting this past week, right, at the Super Bowl celebration parade, right? And that, it just feels like those are common, right? There's often. That's crazy. That's crazy that that's common. Uh, there's several ongoing global wars, right? <laughs> you know, wars across the globe, right? right? There's, there's people in conflict and people displaced from conflict and, and lives being lost in war. 
There are literally pirates in the Red Sea attacking ships and taking ships, right? Like pirates, like from movies, right? This is piracy is happening. Like everything is crazy, right? Our, our politics in this country, they've been crazy for a long time, I feel like, but, but we, we, we have two potential, likely, presidential candidates who people don't think are mentally fit, right? Like, and they're not unfounded questionings, right? I'm not trying to make any political statement here. I'm like, this is crazy, right? Somebody who likely is going to be elected president, we're wondering if they're mentally fit. That, that's, this is crazy. <laughs> the world is crazy. Everything's crazy. And it's not just that these things are happening, right? I would expect that in a broken, sinful world. That's craziness is the norm, right? Uh, the craziness also is that everyone has a different idea how to fix these things, right? Everybody has a different fix for this problem, for any of these problems, right? I imagine if, I, if we had a discussion in this room, or a debate even, and I asked about mass shootings, I'm sure some of you would say the solution is more gun restriction, and some of you would say less gun restriction, right? Because that's, that's just our country. That's the dialogue over, the, over these things right now, right? So I would imagine we, we represent those opinions in this room. I imagine if we asked about the Israel-Palestine conflict, some of you feel like Israel's a villain and some feel like Israel's a victim because that's the discussion right now, right? Everyone has a different opinion on what is going wrong, what is the source of the craziness, and everyone has a different solution. Now, I even go there with politics because we all know that things are divided uh, in, that, in our country on that. The point is everything is crazy and we think we all have a different solution or at least we have an opinion on what is right and wrong, right? Why the conflict's happening. And that's nothing new. It's nothing new that everything is crazy. As we dig into our passage this morning, we're going to see that it was crazy then too. We're going to see that it's been crazy since the fall, right? All the way back in Genesis 3, since sin entered the world, everything has been crazy. We've been trying our best to fix it, to solve the problem. With our best efforts, with our best judgment, trying to put, uh, offer justice from our perspective, right? All of it has just yielded more craziness, more entrenchment, more bitterness, more wars. And as we unpack our passage this morning, we're going to see that our only hope for less crazy is Jesus. The only hope that the only hope that we have for bringing true healing and restoration in the world is through Jesus. If you remember nothing else today, I want you to remember that the only hope is not in ourselves. It's not in our authorities, not in our systems, but in Christ alone. Remember that our only hope is not ourselves or our authorities. It's in Christ alone. Jesus is the only way we can fix the crazy around us and in us. Let's take a look at our passage and unpack that. Let me show you how I get there why I see that out of this psalm. Turn to Psalm 2. Psalm is a big book in the Old Testament. If you've got a paper Bible, uh, if it's digital, you can navigate to it fairly quickly. Uh, psalm 2 is right at the beginning. It's the second one. Uh, we're going to take this uh, psalm, we're going to look at it in four chunks, right? Four literary chunks, because that's naturally how the text breaks, and um, chunks is my favorite word to use when I talk about Scripture. Uh, if, you've, uh, if you're new around here, I, I generally teach from the ESV if you want to follow along with uh, the version that I'm reading from. Uh, we always put the words up here on the screen too, so you can always, if you prefer to do that rather than your own Bible to follow along with and mark up. So uh, let's, let's jump in. We're going to read the first three verses and see David, who's the author, King David, the author of this psalm. We're going to see him reflect on the crazy of his day, right? 
So Psalm, three, Psalm 2, verses 1 through 3. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Okay, remember, this is a song, it's a poem. We gotta, really, we gotta think a little bit about how to unpack this, right? What's going on here? The psalm begins with a question. Why? Why is everything crazy? Why do the nations rage? Why do the people scheme and make plans that yield no results, right? Why do the kings and authorities of the day, why are they seeking, they're seeking counsel from one another and they're against God, right? They've set their backs against God. They turn their backs on God and gone their own way. Saying, let's take counsel among ourselves. Let's do it better ourselves. They're going to rest on their own wisdom, their own power, and try to do it their own way. It says they've declared their intention to break bonds with God. Burst our, their bonds apart and cast away the cords from us. Let's break free of them. See, David's day, what he's observing is that authorities, kings, other rulers around him have turned their back on God. And it didn't stop in David's day, did it, right? It's no different really for us today. We have much the same. We look, uh, we, we look to governments around us and God isn't part of it. and We don't expect God to be a part of it, right? We, we can do the same thing, right? We can, we can look to government programs to fix the crazy around us, to fix poverty, protect the unborn, uphold morality, right? The problems we face aren't going to be solved by the next political candidate that takes office, right? We hope in that. We look for that. We petition, right, our, our justice system for reform and protection, hoping that that'll fix it, that'll change it. In many ways, our societal systems and safeguards, it's where we placed our hope, and we hope that they'll maintain order and offer a better future, that they'll fix the crazy around us. And, and yes, the common grace of God, the goodness of God has established these authorities over us to maintain order in his creation, and it's right for us to, to fight for that, to look for that, to, to vote for that, right? Uh, but that's not where our hope rests, right? The problem is these systems, they're man-made, they're man-dependent, right? Men and women who are sinful, broken individuals just like us are the ones that are in control. And therefore, they're incapable of fixing sin. That's the problem. Sin is the problem. Sin is what brought the crazy and broke everything. We, humanity, all of us, all of us have turned our backs on God and decided we have a better way. Just like the kings that David is questioning. Why are they doing this? And until we turn back to God, until God is the solution, we're never going to get rid of the crazy. The problem is sin. Sin is what the rulers in David's days were doing. They're turning their backs on God. They're rejecting him and his ways. And it's what we're doing, all of us, day in and day out, all around us, everyone, sin. Apart from God, brokenness, doing it our own way instead of looking to God. We need God to intervene and the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives to break us free of it. Sin is man's problem, and man can't fix it himself. Instead, Jesus came to fix it for us, and that's what we're going to see as we continue to work through our passage. Let's take a look at our next verses. If sin is the problem and we're, constantly, we're just stuck in that crazy, is there a fix, <laughs> right? Uh, yes, there is. Uh, with 
We can't fix it with our elected officials. We can't fix it with trying our best or doing better, right? Or, um, that's why uh, God had to intervene. Let's read and think what, first, what does God think about our attempts to fix the crazy, right? Our, our tinkering at solutions, right? The places we place our hope. Picking up in verse 4, it says, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. <laughs> then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. God who sits in heaven, the creator of all that exists, he laughs at their rebellion. He scoffs at their attempts to fix things, to go their, go their own way. He doesn't just remain in, in heaven laughing, though, and rolling his eyes at their attempts, right? He, he intervenes, and we're going to see that. He establishes a king to rule creation. He offers a better way. I set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And I know for, for some of us, because this came up in discussions this week, the notion of God laughing, God scoffing, at, at rebellion, it's hard to swallow, right? Isn't he supposed to be a loving God, a gracious and gentle God? Isn't he supposed to be kind? He's laughing at us. How is laughing and scoffing, how is that consistent with, with God's character as gracious and kind, loving? Which I think those are, those are appropriate questions to ask. I think those are valid questions to ask. You see, the Psalms, they are... They're a poem. They're emotional. They're emotive. You should feel things when you read them. And it's okay to have those feelings. First, let me, let me offer a little bit on how to, how to respond to that, right? How, to, how do we engage with that? When we feel these feelings when we're reading the Psalms, what do we, how do we respond? First, I want to offer a thought on the genre of this, of this text, right? What are we reading, right? I said it's a poem. It's a song. It's less literal and more emotive and figurative, Right? Just as there are truths in our worship songs that we sing, we don't hold those to standards as word for word what we're supposed to be doing, right? Uh, I, I wish I had a good example. We used to sing about a sloppy wet kiss, David. What song is that? <laughs> You're not literally going to give God a sloppy wet kiss, right? Like, uh, but we, we would sing those things, right? And it, it makes you feel something. It makes you think something. But it's not a literal, that's what's happening. That's the point I'm making here is our language when we're in this, in this genre can be more figurative or more emotive. Uh, we sing truthful emotions, though. And I would say this is a truthful part of the psalm. It's not, a, it's not made up. God does look down on rebellion. God does shake his head at rebellion. And that's what we're seeing here. He shakes his head. He knows that the efforts are useless, right? It's, um, I, I get the picture, it just comes to my mind, of like watching my son uh, try to do something where he just, just clearly can't, like trying to reach something off the top shelf or whatever, jumping and jumping. It's like, well, you're never going to get it, right? Like, just ask for help, right? Uh, God is watching these, these rulers try to do it their own way, and he knows it's just not going to go anywhere. It's like, well, you're just never going to get there, never going to amount to anything. Instead, God intervenes. He intervenes with a solution. God laughing, God scoffing, God shaking his head and is, a, is an appropriate response because there's no chance, no hope that we're going to fix this problem without him. 
He needs to bring the solution. And that's what he does when he establishes his king on his mountain, as he says, the psalm says. Just as in King's David and King David's days, they, the kings were arrogant and they thought they could make a better tomorrow apart from God. We do the same thing. I know I do the same thing. I can be ar- we can be arrogant just like them. We can think we have, we have it figured out. We got it, God. I, I got this one. Let me take care of it. Uh, right? We, we minimize sin. We discount how we have hurt other people. We, we, we overlook offenses uh, just to keep the peace rather than addressing what was wrong or hurtful. Right? We, we look to, if I could just get that guy in office, then, then that'll fix, and then, I, then, I'll, then I'll, things will be better, right? You know? We'll get that one all, all solved, right? And then four years down the road, what happens, right? Uh, at least in our system, that's the way things are. You know, if, we just try, if I just try harder, right, I'll stop sinning, right? What if I put these things in place, then maybe I'll stop sinning in that way, right? Um, it's all, all arrogance. It's all ways that we try to solve it ourselves. We're no different. We're no different than the kings of David's days. So why? Why do we do it? <laughs> well, the question, why do we question God? We do. We think we have uh, better laws, better standards, that maybe gods were outdated and we could do better. Let's think, rethink this whole morality thing. Let's think about God's standards. Are they really, should they be our standards as a society anymore? We question, we decide that we got better ways to do it, uh, that maybe God is unloving or out of touch. He's too distant. You know, in our arrogance, we decide that we know how things should be done and how, who should lead, what morality is, what should be permissible. Right? Well, our, our days are different, so we should do it differently. These are all the ways that we can do the same things that the kings of David's day were doing. We make our own rules about how things ought to be. It's just further rebellion against God. Yet God, he is still God. He's still the one in control. And so in the face of our rebellion, in the face of of us trying to do it better ourselves, trying to go our own way, decide what is right and wrong, He's not threatened. He's not concerned. He shakes his head. It's not going to work, Nick. It's not going to work. Turn to me. Come to me. I have a king in place. Follow him. He laughs. He scoffs. He shakes his head at our arrogance. That's where the psalm puts us, right? But it doesn't leave us there. Because that reality, it bears, there's consequences God just put his king in place for a reason. So let's keep reading. Let's see. So if sin's the problem throughout history, if our systems don't fix it, they're still crazy, and what's the solution? And we keep reading. We're going to pick up in verse 7 here, and we're going to see how God intervenes to solve the problem. Right? How God responds besides just establishing a king. What's that king do? Pick up in verse 7. I'm going to read here. Uh, I will tell of the decrees... The Lord said to me, this is the king that he's established that's speaking, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. The Lord's anointed one, God's king, is speaking here. He tells us 
that God, what God has said to him. And we learn that this king is God's son. This is the son who will rule the nations. All the earth will be his, and his reign and his power will be superior to all those who have come before him. As I said, this is a messianic psalm, right? Like we talked about these psalms we're going to be reading. They're all pointing to the coming good king, God's true king. He's going to be unlike anyone else who's led before. The extent of his power will be like anything else that we've seen before. It'll reach the ends of the earth. And so in Israel's history with each new king, they wondered, is this the one, right? Is this the king that, that God told about, that this psalm told about? Is this going to be the new one, the promised one, the true one? Each king, the answer was no. Each king was flawed and often no different than the arrogant kings that we started with, right? No different than we are, sin, sinful, flawed individuals, unable, incapable of solving the problem of sin. I would have to take a different kind of king altogether. And that's what this psalm is pointing to, God's son. This is why the New Testament writers are so excited and prolific in quoting this psalm. I don't know if you've noticed that. If you you have a study Bible, you see all kinds of cross-references back to this psalm as you read. See, they, they saw the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus as fulfillment of this psalm. They saw this psalm pointing to Jesus. And they were right to see Jesus as the king that God promised. They are right to see that Jesus as the king that is being mentioned here, God's true king that will rule all creation. The Gospels, they connect this psalm to Jesus' baptism. At Jesus' baptism, he comes up out of the water and there's a voice of God descending like a dove. It says, and the spirit descending like a dove. And the voice of God says, you are my son, I've begotten you. Like, you are my son. It's referring, it's quoting here to this psalm specifically. They saw that, they quoted it, they, they referenced this psalm, you are my son, today I've begotten you. In, uh, in the book of Acts, in chapter 13, Paul is preaching in Antioch, and he's quoting this psalm directly, saying that Jesus was made higher than the angels, he was the son of God. How much greater is Jesus than the angels as he's preaching there, right? It's chapter 13 of Acts, you can go and read that. The author of Hebrews loves this passage quotes it in two places, in in chapter 1 and chapter 5, celebrating Jesus as God's Son, our great high priest that we have. The New Testament quotes this passage often for a reason, because Jesus is the fulfillment of this psalm. uh, It's not only there as well. There's clear parallels to this psalm in other places in the Old Testament that we see clear connection to Jesus. It deepens the expectation of this coming king, as the as revelation is, comes out in the Old Testament, more and more this image of this king and who it is and what, what he's going to be like. <clears throat> He'll have a kingdom that has no ends, no bounds to it. It's not just what this psalm says, that it's very clear in Daniel chapter 2. Daniel is, is telling uh, King Nebuchadnezzar, uh, he's, he's telling Nebuchadnezzar his own dream. Nebuchadnezzar won't tell him. He has to tell him the dream, then he has to interpret it for him. And miraculously, God gives him all the knowledge he needs to know. He reveals all of it to him. It's, a, it's an excellent story. It's a prophetic vision that, that Nebuchadnezzar has had of this giant image and a stone that comes and crashes, uh, crushes it, and that stone turns into a mountain that fills the entire earth. And the interpretation is, is the stone is God's king. And his coming kingdom is the mountain that fills the entire earth. 
it's a, as an aside, uh, a few years back in, in the midst of COVID, in live stream days, we uh, worked through the book of Daniel. So if you want to um, hear more about that fascinating story and, and its parallels to this psalm, I encourage you to go back and look at uh, uh, Daniel chapter 2. You can find it on our podcast or on our YouTube channel if you want to see me on video, uh, I guess, I don't know. Or just go read Daniel 2, it's, it's great. Um, since I know uh, some of you brought this up in discussion, I want, I want to highlight some imagery here that, that I think can be also, you know, can draw up some emotion to us, some questions, right? The image of iron smashing clay pottery into pieces here that we just read. Now, this isn't an image of God bludgeoning the kings of the world to death, to pieces, right? It can, it can feel that way. You can see that way, right? Again, figurative language, common symbols, common imagery in the Old Testament. Certainly, I want, I want to be clear, I'm not saying, certainly God's wrath is in view here. God just breaking down the establishment and, and replacing the kings of the world with his kingdom is what's in view here. It's, it's not a, it's maybe not a bloody mess that it maybe first appears or we might think from our images of war and iron bludgeoning, iron rods. Uh, what I want to point out is iron and clay are common imagery in the Old Testament. It's, it's referred to in that Daniel passage I was just talking about, iron and clay, and it's common symbols to, to describe the strength and power of a kingdom, whose kingdom is more sustainable, uh, more, has more longevity, Right? You think about the just clear imagery, right? If iron and clay smash together, the iron is unfazed, but the clay is useless at that point, right? It's been made useless. The superior kingdom is the iron kingdom, the one that will last. And that's the imagery that gets used, clay vessels smashed with iron. We talk about God's kingdom being stronger, better, more lasting. The point is, is that God's kingdom, when it is established in its fullness, and, God, and Jesus' reign reaches the ends of the earth, there will be no other king needed. They will all be made useless because there will be the true king reigning on his throne and all will have been worshiping him. All will have been replaced. There'll be no other need for other kings. Like clay vessels, they'll be useless, made useless. The point of this part of the psalm is that there is only one lasting king. One lasting kingdom. God's king and God's kingdom are the only ones that will last. All else will pass away. All others will, be, will fail to fix the problem, to fix what is broken. Like clay that meets iron, they'll be rendered useless. God's king will rule all creation as the only effective way to solve the problem. And so, as we continue on, let's look Forward, we look forward to the anticipation of when Jesus will reign in full over all creation, when that solution will be brought. As we await the return of Christ and the fulfillment of that day, we see the kingdom, his kingdom ever expanding in the reigns of, reign of our lives and the lives of those around us as we share Jesus with people, as people worship him and follow him as king. The kingdom expands. The reign of Jesus expands. The psalm wraps up with a warning and a call for response. So let's read and see that. Uh, picking up in verse 10. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, 
lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Now we began the psalm with David wondering why any king would turn their back on God and go their own way, right? And we're wrapping it up with a warning to those who are turning their back to God. It's a call to be wise and serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. We're told to kiss the sun or, or experience the wrath of God, right? And, and conversely, we're told that we find blessing if we find our safety in this king. We can find wrath or we can find blessing. That's where we're left. I see sort of three, key, three parts to this warning or challenge here in these verses we just read. There's a call to serve God and rejoice in him. There's a directive to kiss the sun, and there's a promise of blessing. I want to unpack those briefly as we sort of get out what's going on here. Serving God and rejoicing in him with fear and trembling is about the most natural response I can think of. I mean, if, if we stop and think about it, if, if God is who he says he is, which he is, <laughs> uh, God is creator of the universe, right? All-powerful, all-knowing, He's always existed and always will. Each of us, we're here, any of us, any human, maybe 80-ish years if the Lord sees fit, maybe a little longer, maybe a little less, right? We're, we're, we're finite. We have limits. The humans, limits of all, all humans have, right? We're not all-knowing. We have our biases. We're broken. We're sinful. And so if I have to choose who to, who to serve and rejoice, over? Uh, am I going to choose the fleeting, broken, finite vessel, or am I going to choose the infinite, great, all-powerful one? I'm going to choose God. I don't know about you. It's obvious to me, right? And so the, the directive to, to serve God and fear him makes absolute sense to me, right? Uh, and doing so with fear and trembling also makes complete sense to me too. Maybe, maybe not you, but uh, when I encounter something more powerful than me, so much bigger than me, Something that makes me feel my smallness, fear and trembling are a natural response, right? I shared this with, with some of you in, in the small group world this week, uh, that we're on our Tuesday small group. I am reminded of this every time I've been on top of a mountain. And if you go to Colorado LT this summer, you'll have a chance to climb mountains, and I encourage you to do it. It's fun. It's great. Explore creation. But every time I've reached the summit of a mountain, I have this great feeling of power and achievement. I've done something great. I got to the top of this, right? Me got to the top of this, right? Awesome. And then I go and peek over the edge. And fear and trembling begins, right? And I immediately realize how small I am. And a plummet 8,000 feet would mean certain death. And so I check my anchoring and my footing, and I get low to the ground, right, and find my safety, Fear and trembling in response to realizing my fragility, how small I truly am, how actually weak I am compared to God or, or creation. Fear and trembling is a natural response. And so in the presence of God, to experience God, to know God, fear and trembling, I think, are a very natural response for us. And that's what David's pointing out here. Know God, fear and tremble before him because he's great. And he is all-powerful, and we are not. Moving on to the next part of the warning, there's the directed to kiss the sun, right? Which is, I, 
I don't know, it feels awkward. <laughs> uh, how am I supposed to do that? What's going on with that? Um, well, this is, uh, the point here is it's just, it's a sign of allegiance. It's a sign of alignment with God's king, right? Honoring the king, right? That's what it's calling for. It's more practical in their day than it is ours. We don't kiss the president to show our allegiance to him or something like that, right? Uh, if that were a thing. Uh, it's stating our loyalty to God's king. That's the point here. And that's the call, is align with God. Remain aligned with God. Don't align with the world. Don't align with rebellious earthly kings as a path. That's just a pathway to destruction, a pathway to God's wrath, right? The choice is to align with God by kissing the sun or choosing to be in God's kingdom, see him as your king, or to align with sin and be apart from God and experience wrath. It's a commitment, a commitment to remain in the world and committed to rebellious kings and systems. It's a commitment to a failing king and a failing kingdom, one that's going to pass away. The other option is a commitment to the lasting true kingdom that won't. And so again, it feels like an obvious choice to me. Uh, lastly, we're told to find our refuge in the sun, to, to find blessing there, Right? It's the opposite of wrath, right? Find, find blessings, find protection, safety. As we align with God as our true king, as the true king of all creation, of all that exists, we're blessed, right? Sin is broken and we are restored. We don't face his wrath. We face his relationship and his presence. We find our refuge in Christ as God's true king. It means that we're putting our hope in him. We're finding our security in Christ rather than our earthly systems to fix the crazy around us, rather than ourselves to overcome this, the crazy in us. To be clear, the reality is we have a choice. We can choose the crazy around us or we can put our hope in, in God. We can choose Jesus and his reign or we can choose the passing, fleeting, worldly ways. Our response is the solution to the craziness around us not because we do anything, but because God has done it. The reign of Christ brings peace and ends the reign of sin in our lives. All regimes are broken pottery when Jesus reigns, and sin is broken when Jesus reigns in our lives. With the perfect king on the throne, the problem of sin has been eliminated. Sin is the problem. It's what's causing the crazy Choosing to follow Jesus as our king is the solution to that problem. It's the solution in our lives and in the world around us. Jesus is the solution. And so choosing Jesus is the solution to overcoming sin and its reign in our lives and society. The craziness around us will remain, but as God's kingdom continues to expand, the craziness should get more bearable. <laughs> Sin shouldn't have its power over me anymore if Jesus is my king. That's what scripture tells us. Yet the peaceful and powerful reign of Christ in our lives, it becomes more and more common. The crazy subsides. And this is all because our only hope is not in ourselves and in the authorities around us, but in Christ alone. The solution to the crazy is Jesus. Hope in our government, hope in leaders, even church leaders, hope in systems, it's all misplaced hope. Our hope is only in Jesus. Our country won't fix itself based off of who gets elected in November. 
The wars around the world will not end if someone just listens to reason. The craziness around us won't go away because we put this law in place or we repeal that law. Until sin is broken in our lives, the craziness will remain. The problem is sin and the solution is Jesus breaking its reign, smashing it to pieces on the cross and through his uh, resurrection and the empty tomb. It's the only hope we have is in Christ. If we want to see a world transformed, we need to work for Jesus to be known in those around us. We need to work for Jesus to transform our hearts. We don't need to work for another worldly system or political leader. We need to work for Jesus to be known. And so, Alani Life, let us be a people who kiss the sun, who align with him, who let his reign in our lives transform us and proclaim it to those around us to be transformed as well. Let God's true king serve and reign in his kingdom come in our lives and the lives of those around us. Because that kingdom knows no end and it will never find its, its ends on this earth. Would you pray with me?